Welcome to Season 3 of Voices of Value, where Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos continue their conversations with high-achieving guests who share their personal stories and, more importantly, the lessons they've learned from their journey. Whether it's Olympians sharing the roadmap that took them to a gold medal, professional sports people taking you inside their mindset, business leaders revealing their success strategies, or everyday people sharing life hacks, you can be sure you'll find value simply by joining the discussion with your hosts, Peter and Rick. Welcome back to Voices of Value. Peter Kakos here with my very good friend, Rick Rushton. And uh, Ricky, we have got an absolute special guest today, have we We, not? We have, and we're very fortunate to have this opportunity because uh, Jamie Carr is absolutely a star across racing, and the demands on her are quite huge from RSN, Racing.com, you know, so Radio TV. Uh, so much so that she's uh, signed by an international management group now that are actually preventing these types of interviews. So, so we, we just snuck, snuck in. in we yeah. snuck in. We just we snuck in. But <laughs> and the reason is is that she just wants to ride horses. She doesn't want to have all the uh, you know challenging stuff that um, you know comes with being the sort of world class uh, athlete that she is, Pete. But for those who are not racing followers, uh, Jamie is uh, a, a young lady in her mid twenties. She uh, left school as a teenager, fell in love with the ability to get the most out of horses. Uh, She tells the story, Pete, in this interview about how as a young child, she used to see her friends get pushed around in prams and strollers and she'd actually be led along by a little pony and uh, <laughs> so much so that she can remember her earliest memories of convincing her parents to let her, she didn't want to be led with the pony, she wanted to ride the pony. So she's got this real innate ability to sit on a horse, maintain balance, uh, get the horse comfortable, get the horse to run for her and, you know, she's grown up with uh, Equine Pursuits, Pony Club, uh, eventing, a whole heap of stuff and as you'll hear in this interview, even on her days off, she takes the horses that she's rehoming and re-educating, ex-race horses that are broken down, haven't cut the mustard, and she's taking them to places like Bonio Park in the Mornington Peninsula. She's taking them to the National Equestrian Centre down at Werribee, and she's retraining them and, and moving them on to families that will love them. And she's just got this absolute passion for living a farm life. She's not a city girl. Um so much talent. She is, uh, you know, really a strike rate. If Don Brevin's 99.94 and he's double anyone else who's uh, ever played the game, that's her strike rate at the moment. She's double more than anyone who's kind of, you know, on, hot on her heels. And uh, as we said last week in the uh, preview of this, you know, with the Australian Open that was just run and won uh, last month in, in terms of Melbourne at uh, Rod Laver Arena, you know, Naomi Osaka won the, the female sort of draw and Novak Djokovic won the males. Imagine Novak Djokovic losing to Naomi Osaka. That would be world news. Well, that's what Jamie yeah. Carr's doing every single race meeting. She's beating some of the best jockeys, male jockeys in the world. So it's been only a short career. As you said, she's only sort of mid-20s. Yep. 2012, 13 was when she started um, in her first full season. And uh, in October of last year was uh, the world's leading female jockey. It's amazing how quick you so can make that transition. Someone, yeah, that's someone pretty special today. I think she knows how to actually advance through with a bit of talent, uh, how to actually get the results in your favour. So rather than us just prat on about it, why don't we just listen to her direct ourselves? Let's uh, sit back, relax, have your pens and pencils and crayons and whatever else ready to take notes from Jamie Carr. Uh, Jamie Carr, welcome to Voices of Value and thank you so much for the gift of your time. No worries. Thank you for having me on. 
You know, if you Google your name, I'm pretty sure people would find so many reference points to you at the moment. Some are global, saying that you're the best female jockey in the world. Others are counter-arguing that, saying you're probably the best jockey in the world. And there's even people that suggest you're the best athlete in the world. I guarantee you, you'll find a lot of reference points to what you've achieved. I doubt there'll be anyone referencing that you get up at 3 a.m. most days, if not every day, that you're actually in, you know, riding mode. I doubt they'll highlight how hard it is for you to maintain a diet that allows you to ride at incredibly low weights, even with the COVID allowances in the recent racing season. And also, more importantly, they probably don't see the 16, 17, 18 hour days that you sometimes have to put in from track work, jump outs, trials to daytime racing to sometimes twilights meetings that end late at night and get up and rinse, repeat and do it all again. How important for you is the ability to have the discipline required that allows you to ride just as sharp at 4am as it, as it requires you to sometimes ride at 10pm at night? Yeah, look, I think the best thing about racing is the adrenaline that sort of picks us up and carries us through because yeah like some days are challenging um everyone's very quick to uh point out what you've done wrong and not really what you've done right but um sort of days like yesterday wednesday we're up early um swimming horses at the beach and then we're at trials maybe six or seven trials and then you get maybe an hour before you have to go to the twilight races and by that last race, um, you're running a bit low on energy and a bit low for motivation. But um, I think the adrenaline's probably the a blessing, really, when you get out on the horse. You you go to work, you do your job, um, but yeah, the parts in between uh, can be quite challenging. So the adrenaline that you get rushing through your body when you're doing something really, really well, what happens when you perhaps don't do as well as you know you can do? That's a, probably a different sort of reference point, isn't it, where you might not get the ride that you thought you would or couldn't perhaps get out or you may have been, it's just the circumstances didn't allow you to be at your best. Adrenaline is a reward that gives you a feeling of you've done well here. What's the stimulus for when you think you're not going so well? Yeah, I still try and work on that every day. I'm not, not so great at um sort of letting people down or if I do something wrong, I, I probably take it to heart a bit more than I should. Um, but I'm a lot better than when I was an apprentice. I, I did take things to heart too much and um, it's hard to move on to the next race straight away. You're always dwelling on the same thing. And um, uh, probably a big one of mine was the Melbourne Cup. It, it was um, an amazing experience, but it was very hard to, to move on from the, the what ifs and if I could have done this better and got out sooner and, People are very quick to um, point that out to me and it's, um, it, it is quite hard. You've got to move on quickly and, and sharply in this game and um, that's probably one thing I do struggle with. So Prince of Aaron, for those who are not racing aficionados, is a horse that came out from the UK, has had a, a real historical highlighted feature in the Melbourne Cup, has gone so close so many times. And Jamie had uh, a strong finish, a storming finish, and uh, many thought had she have got out early, all the you know the, the wonderful judges and critiquers who have never, A, jumped on a horse or even understand what it's like to make a decision within one one-hundredth of a second guiding a half-ton animal when she was probably riding at 53. 54, 55 kilos. It's kind of crazy. But um, the thought there was that there was a lot of history around the fact that she was jumping in the Melbourne Cup, the only female rider uh, coming out of gate one where the previous only ever female winner of the Melbourne Cup, Michelle Payne, jumped out of on a horse similarly named. Uh, you know, so two princes, there, there seemed to be the open bet. And when, she, when Jamie you know, loomed late 
everyone sort of thought, here it is. So to justify that she didn't win, everyone went looking for the critiquing of what went wrong. But I think at the time, Jamie, you said you were incredibly proud of his run and proud of the effort. Is that, is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, for sure. And and I called the trainer afterwards, um, Charlie, and he was just wrapped with the horse and he, and he couldn't be upset with the horse. He, he ran so well and he said there was nothing I could have done, which made me feel a lot better. But you've still got to turn that social media off because it's just – it just gets to you after a while when there's so many people commenting and critiquing. And, um, yeah, like you said, they, they're they pretty quick to pump you up. And, and when you've had a good day, they, they comment. But when you don't, they're very quick to jump on that bandwagon too. So one of the things that unites just about every peak performer we've interviewed, Jamie, is no one demands more of themselves than the athlete themselves. So it's interesting when people give feedback thinking that they are somehow going to know more than the athlete themselves in that moment and try and give some sort of, you know, armchair expert uh, advice. Who are some of the opinions that you do value? Who are some of the voices that you do listen to? Are they, you know, within the racing industry? Clearly, I, I suspect they would be, you know, part of your support network group. But who are some of the voices that you do value and why do you value them? Uh, probably the number one person I value is my partner, Clayton. He is, he's been in the racing game a long time and he can give you two different perspectives. One being your partner, he, he always tries to sort of um, help you out and, and pump you up but then he, he does give you that opinion because he is in the racing industry and he does help a lot um, a lot with my mindset and um, yeah definitely he's number one um, number one person around me but people like the trainers um, you know you, you value their opinions and and you know in the end they're the ones that you, you need to keep happy and and if they're happy then you know whatever opinions in the public don't really matter. And who are some of the courageous conversations you've had to have with owners when you've got to come back and, you know, probably they've pumped up, they've built up for this moment. It's, uh, you know, a 1,400 metre race that's gone for about 90 seconds and uh, in a split second it hasn't gone the way that they would have wanted, that you would have wanted. Uh, how hard is it to have those conversations with the owners who, uh, well, for most of the last season haven't been on track, obviously, because of COVID, but for those that when you do have those conversations, um, what's your thoughts there about how you communicate uh, the actual result as they've just seen it and experienced it, but what you've known from being on the horse and, and feeling it and being in the moment? Yeah, you've just got to be really positive, even when um, things have gone wrong or the horse hasn't run up to expectations. I think you need to find some positive out of the situation and and, you know, you've got to be honest as well with them. But it's like you said, we ha- haven't had owners on course for a long time. And it's actually, it's, um, I'm, I'm trying to look way back now because it's, it's a different situation at the minute. Um, everything is on video. So they're sending videos out to owners and, and it's, um, it's probably a lot nicer because you get a few minutes just to go over the race and, and, and sort of think about what you're going to say rather than just getting off the horse and being sort of, um, blurting out what, what you think. Um, but, I've I've learned probably the hard way in a few situations. Um, I'm probably too honest to the owners, and sometimes they they need to hear it, but they don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, you've got to find some positives and and give that back to the owners, which is hard sometimes. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's such an emotional business racing and there's so many stakeholders involved. As you say, there's the trainers who are up before sometimes the track riders getting everything ready. They, they, they're, oh, I mean, if you think of a business model, you wouldn't think horse training would be the model you'd want to sell out there as the best practice model in the world when you think about the hours they spend. Uh, I think they take care of their horses better than they take care of themselves. They're more 
concerned about their horse's diet, you know, physiotherapy needs, uh, medical needs and attention to detail more than themselves. So there's so many stakeholders, you don't want to let anyone down. Clearly, you don't want to let yourself down. What is your strategy, Jamie, from having a challenging scenario but dealing with it in the moment and moving on from it quickly uh, is it that we're winning or we're learning or is it that you know we just basically have to move on because the next race is probably coming around in a matter of 20 odd minutes what what's your process for dealing with something that's negative and getting ready to get your mindset ready to go for the next opportunity ahead of you yeah look like i said i that's probably one thing i really need to work on um what I do is just sort of put it behind me, move on, push it back into the back of your mind and sort of deal with it later because you don't have enough time to get on and move on with it. Um, but, yeah, look, I'm learning every day with that because it, it did used to affect me a lot. Um, I probably don't go on um, social media as much as I used to because that's probably a big thing that, you know, in yourself you've made a a mistake in that split second um but you don't need someone else that you don't know telling you that <laughs> no nah, and isn't it amazing that you know if we ever need feedback just go on social media from you know someone who's never done <laughs> it but can is happy with an opinion on it and i say to you know the young athletes that i mentor if in the afl sense if they're at a football club i say who's the best player here and they'll say they'll give me the name of the best player there and i'll go will you be as good as he is straight away game one no i won't be okay well just so you know he's played nearly 300 games Games. he's won every individual award you can win even he gets criticism on social media so the advice i give them jamie is don't take advice from someone you wouldn't go and get feedback from otherwise you can just let it go it's nothing to do with you your other people's opinions of you means nothing to you it's none of your business the only business you should be thinking about as an athlete is what do my coaches think what does my partner think and clayton as you said earlier is a great resource because he's someone who trains has ridden and so he's seen all sides of the, of the fence i guess can i ask what was it like growing up knowing that both mum and dad are olympians did you get any dis- i know you didn't get any skating dna for those who don't know jamie's parents they've Definitely represented not. our country at the Winter Olympics with John and Karen Carr having a, uh, a decorated, um, you know, Olympic career. I, I think mum has the bragging rights being that she went to more games than dad, clearly. Um, but I know mum's been a great support to you. She's even on track today, isn't she? And, and, and being with you at trials and, and race She's days. She's always and, there, yep. Yeah, always there. Did you, did you get a sense growing up that you were part of a disciplined household in terms of, you know, to be your best, you have to prepare and have to give you your all, things of that nature? Or was it just mum and dad were mum and dad and I didn't really sort of have that sense of understanding they're probably completely different to what um you've just described they're they're actually probably the most laid-back easygoing parents <laughs> but they always pushed me to do what I wanted to do and um, that was always horse riding and they'd be there every weekend and if I wanted to go to a comp in um, Queensland they'd drive me up there they were just amazing and um, some might think I'm a sport only child, but <laughs> they, they were sort of the opposite. They just wanted me to succeed and to be happy. And when I said I wanted to be a jockey, they, um, let me leave school and used to drive me to work when I had no license. And, um, yeah, they, they were just so supportive. And I think because their parents were so supportive of them going to the Olympics and giving up probably a big chunk of their life for that, um, they, they knew what I had to give up to be a jockey and um, I think you just needed support at that time and that's what I got from them. 
And that's a fantastic sort of reference point for all of us, especially those who are, are listening. It's a good opportunity to go to mum and dad and say, hey, thanks so much for giving me the opportunities to do what, what I'm doing at the moment because, um, you know, one of the things that needs to be acknowledged is that, you know, when you're a toddler at two and most kids are dealing with their motor neuron skills and trying to walk and trying to, you know, uh, passively get through uh, a shopping centre in a pram, you're actually being led on a pony uh, when you were two, I think is the is the story I hear. And, and to the point where you didn't even like being led at some stage you'd like to actually ride the pony to a degree it just goes to show how mum and dad were going to give you the opportunity to develop at your pace around your skill set but learning to ride at a young age because people seem to think you were late to to the to the game which strikes me is a little bit strange if you actually look at your history you left school as a teenager uh went into an apprenticeship won a premiership in your apprentice year you were obviously developing pretty quickly but you did do a lot of as you say extra sort of riding in the sense of com competitions and things of that nature which gave you a foundation which is amazing do you think that's helped you with those who describe your seat in the uh, high competitive world of professional jockeys says you know you're very balanced and the horses seem to run for you do you think that's because you did do the extra stuff that maybe most jockeys don't do in the sense of you weren't just thinking about how can I be a race jockey, you were trying to be a better sort of co-companion on a horse, if that's the right terminology to use? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I look at some jockeys and think I don't know how they um, just never ridden a horse before and just jump on a horse and then and learn how to be a jockey. Like sort of this good example this morning, I was riding one at the beach and, and you know, they, they duck out underneath you and I, I kick my legs out the stirrups and ride them like a normal horse and I feel like I have a lot more balance um, because I have ridden horses my whole life and and you can you see me behind the gates, I always sort of kick my legs out if they're playing up and I just feel like I have a lot more balance. Um, and, yeah, it, it's really helped, um, especially the disciplines I did. I used to do mounted games and um, that was a lot of jumping on and off and vaulting on and you just learn how to ride a horse and, and to you know, feel and read them. And if they're going to do something, I feel like I can sort of read the horse a few strides before they do it, um, if that makes sense. And yeah, like I said, I don't think I would have been um, a jockey if I, if I hadn't grown up with horses and, and learned how to ride them first, that's for sure. And you're very intuitive with the horse. You feel like you can actually read them. And I think that's what a lot of trainers now realise too. So they don't load you up with a lot of instructions. They let you sort of feel the horse, feel the race unfold is what I'm hearing as, you know, I'm hearing your trainers interviewed as you're saluting more often than not at the moment. Uh, the first interview that the media goes to is the trainer and uh, what instructions did you give Jamie? Didn't really give her too much, to be honest. Just uh, let her ride the horse and horses seem to run for her. I think that's uh, trainer speak for she's in tune with the horse and so you, know, you can have the best game plan, but as the gates open, if you don't step away when you're expected to, if you don't sort of land where they expect you to in the run, um, you know, uh, as many of our listeners on this particular podcast know, we've had the great fortune of interviewing Craig Williams, who is uh, just studies everything about every race to the minute detail. We've also interviewed Stevie Baster, who's the smiling assassin, who looks like he's cool as a cucumber, but he also does a little bit of research. But the best athletes tend to be the ones that don't overthink it and just ride the moment and get into that moment. You strike me, Jamie, as someone who is that way inclined as well. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, definitely, yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> trainers have trainers have given up, sort of asking me what the game plan is before the race because I say, "Oh, just keep them happy, just land when we land." <laughs> I think they've uh, yeah, they've got tired of asking me. So, um, but yeah, I have a 
obviously I, I have a look at the race and see where the speed is and what the horses are to follow. But um, like you said, anything can happen when you jump and um, I tend to make up my own mind. Um, if they jump well, then we go forward. If not, then we just find a spot. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that it sort of helps me be more open-minded riding for trainers that do leave it up to me. So you won three premierships in Adelaide. Was that the catalyst to say, let's see if we can actually mix it with the the big league on the East Coast, i.e. Sydney and or Melbourne? What was the choice? What, what was the overriding decision to come to Melbourne? Look, it was probably more of a spur at the moment thing. I I, um, I thought if I was going to give it a crack, it was going to be then. Um, I was going well enough in Adelaide and I thought, um, let's just see if we can go to Melbourne before um, the Adelaide Carnival and, and try and get on some um, good horses for David Hayes at the time. I was riding for him in Adelaide a fair bit. Um, and we just had a falling out with McAvoy as well. Nothing major, but he wanted me to ride um, either all of his or none of his. And in Adelaide, it was just a little bit too small to base yourself with one trainer. Um, so I thought, look, this is the time to do it. Let's just go to Melbourne. And I was only originally going to go there for maybe three months and come home. Um, but in about two months' time, I think I won my first Group 1, um, the Adelaide Cup in um, Melbourne. And then I just, you know, everything just started um, kicking off after that and um, I loved it over there. So obviously Harlan holds a place in your heart for a couple of reasons. Obviously your first Group 1, but clearly, as you said, for the Hayes Stable, which you know, obviously when you think of uh, Lindsay Park and iconic South Australian, your hometown sort of uh, family, the CS Hayes. And, you know, I was just thinking earlier about, you know, some of the, the things that you achieved in Adelaide, probably didn't even realise you were doing was you're ticking them all off. But to win your first Group 1 with Harlan, must have been a buzz knowing that it was, you know, with that Hayes connection as well, one of the reasons why you came across. It was, yeah, and it was um, it was quite sort of overwhelming because I think I had a really big week. I was riding morning and night everywhere and um, I was thinking, oh, what am I doing? Like I could have a, a really easy life in Adelaide, but um, ticking that off, it just sort of, I sort of thought, look, they can't take that off me now. Like I've, I've, I've done this and proven that, um, you know, I can, can compete with um, the jockeys in Melbourne and, um, sort of just um, made me realise, yep, I really love it here and I, I want to base myself there. Well, for me, you know, when you went on the Group 3, I think it was, on Sistine Demon, was that was that a, a moment where you thought, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin here and I think I've got the talent to mix it, but I've I've won a Group 3 pretty quickly. Um, does that does that sort of give you the confidence to then think, I, I do belong in this, in this company? Because it is a tough environment the jockeys that are running around in victoria at the moment when you think about it yeah it is um look uh, it didn't really sink in when i won that um group three in um caulfield for andrew noblet it probably that stint in melbourne it wasn't the right time for me to stay there um i had a great time and i learned a lot and uh, mick price was actually probably one of the best reasons why i did go home because he said look jamie um i love your riding and i can put you on a lot of my horses but you'll be maybe fourth fifth string for me and I think you should go home, establish yourself as a senior and then come back. And look, he could have just kept me there and kept me writing work for him and, and used me like many trainers would. Um, but him telling me I should go home and come back in a few years' time was the, probably the best thing I ever did because I wasn't ready to stay in Melbourne at that time. Um, obviously, I had a lot of success as an apprentice, but I, I just needed to go home and um, sort of come back in a few years' time, a lot more mature, and, and I did... 
So fast forward to this season, clearly the results speak louder than anything anyone can say about you. And I'm sure if we've learned anything throughout this interview, Jamie, it's kind of, you're not a, let's just call it an overly efficient planner. You tend to go with the flow a little bit and back yourself in and Correct. whatever's in front of you will, 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 will make its way out in time. And if you don't know the answer, you'll probably find it as you're in the middle of the moment. I, I get that sense from you, but... You know, the, your fourth group won on Nature Strip, a horse that has got anyone who follows racing will know uh, his checkered career. I, I work with uh, a jockey that we both love and know, and uh, he he told me in 2017 when he rode him just how difficult he was. And, um, you know, to know that he's been rated as arguably the fastest sprinter in the world at the moment, but he's quirky. Uh, you just win a group one on him in the most recent of times. Tough conditions, mum and dad should have been there. Uh, I think uh, if I listened to your post-race interview well, it was, you know, mum and dad were going to be at a table on the finish line. They would have seen your salute. It would have been a great way for you to repay all the support they've given you. Clearly, they know that anyway. What's it like to ride? Is he the quickest horse you've ridden? By far. He's just a machine. Um, and it's quite a, a different sort of um, speed to just riding a normal racehorse he's very he honestly feels like he's cantering in slow motion he's, he feels like he's going slow but then he's just flying past any horse around him and um he, he's just got the whole package he's just a professional um amazing athlete and just to get the call up to ride him um like there was a lot a lot of behind the scenes work there um i was really good friends with cameron cook who um is wallace foreman in melbourne and he pretty much just threw my name in the hat and he said they were in a meeting and um, he just kept texting Jamie Carr, Jamie Carr, Jamie Carr. The Chris Waller just kept harassing him. So i got to thank him a lot for that. But like I said, just to get the chance to ride the horse was just um, probably the most amazing sort of feeling so far in, in, in racing. And persistence beats resistance. So that was good of him to do that for you. Now, <laughs> as we start to wrap up and we're very conscious of your time, you're, you're doing this interview as you're about to uh, go through a, a you know, Go a and ride rise. a jumper. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That should be nice and fun. Um, yes. <laughs> interesting. Just, it seems now you're a little bit more strategic perhaps, and I'm not saying you're a, a, a devoutee of planning, but it was almost like, we'll, we'll see how we go back to the talent in. Has that changed now that your profile has increased dramatically? You've obviously got uh, more commitments now coming forward. You're, you're getting more options to ride for, let's just say, more of the on-Broadway as opposed to off-Broadway stables, and you know, you're giving the chance to ride a horse like Nature Strip, who, you know, who wouldn't jump into that. Um, are, you, are you finding that you're becoming a little bit more strategic now about how you want to go about it, or are you holding true to authentically who you are and just backing in that you're on a journey and you'll control the controllables when you're in the moment? Which of those two do you think is applicable for the 2021 version of Jamie Carr? Uh, a bit of both, I think. Um, I think we're riding a lot more um, strategically, as you say, at the minute where we're not sort of going to faraway places and and um, probably riding less but more quality on on the bigger days, which is ultimately what I wanted to do. Um, and, and I have a lot more people around me now sort of giving me advice and, and before I was sort of just yeah just chipping away at you know um as many winners as I can and, and going wherever I could to get rides and um now it's probably more of a team effort just you know you get Craig Williams speak of his team a lot um I think I've got a lot of really good people around me that I think you need that um just at the moment when you've got a lot of pressure and a lot of expectations on you I think they help take it off and, and they plan more things for me and plan where I should go and what I should ride, which is make, makes my life a lot easier. As you say, um, 
I'm not really one to plan. I sort of let things happen and um, I definitely need those people in my life. And that's not a criticism, by the way. I I love it. I, I don't think <laughs> yeah, we've all got a, as, as elite individuals, like, you know, whether they be jockeys, any elite athlete, they've all got a common goal. They just don't have a common way of getting there. And I love that. You know, uh, when you talk about Willow's team, I mean, our Christmas function for his team took in <laughs> three trestle tables to fit everyone in. And, you know, when when I have a session with him to try and get his mindset right on the job, I feel like I need therapy at the end of it because he just can talk a glass eye to sleep and he's yeah, so I've intense. only got one table at the minute, not three. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, yeah. But I but yeah, but I love the fact that that works for him as the process is whatever process works for you. And process precedes the results. And if we've learned anything here, we've learned that effectively you were given an opportunity with parents who asked you to to make the most of every opportunity that they could help you create, and you created them and took advantage of the best way you could pay them back isn't winning on nature strip as good as that would have been for them to be there i think they already know that you've repaid them because you've made the most of your talent you've been prepared to get out of your comfort zone leave home and everything you know to arrive in melbourne with i think the strategic planning was i'll just show up and write as many sort of um you know trials or as many jump outs or track work as i can for stables and see where that takes me and i i've got no doubts that first group one on harlem would have had a, a really strong south australian connection which would have made you feel uh, good too but it sounds to me like now you're going okay it's got to be quality over quantity i could be riding every race meeting across the state but i'm going to go for uh, are you aware of your strike rate at the moment uh i i get a little glimpse of it every now on racing.com but um it is a lot better than it used to be because like you said I, i'm not burning myself out by riding everywhere and, and as many as i can you know jump on it it's yeah it is quality and and um, that's a lot better for my mindset at the minute. Well, it's north of 20%. And if you don't follow racing, that's almost Don Bradman style. You know, it is elite in every shape or form. Have you had opportunities to go internationally? And would you pursue those if they came up? Yeah, I've had a, a lot of um, talk around it, obviously, at the minute. We can't go anywhere with COVID. But um, I think definitely before I um, sort of finish my career, I would love to ride in Hong Kong for a stint or, or Japan. Um, but obviously at the minute we just want to ride in Melbourne and, and try and get this premiership underway. Um, but I think I wouldn't have a big stint because that's not sort of my style. I don't really want to go and lock myself away from my horses and my farm for too long, but I could definitely do a little stint over, overseas. And what would the outcome be if you did go to Hong Kong? Would it be just to see how you go in a different environment away from the familiarity of what you know at home or would it be just to get another experience or what, what would be the main driver if you did that? It would be another experience for sure and um, just to obviously say I've ridden in Hong Kong and, and probably make some more connections and um, like in Japan, obviously, with, with Damien Lane, he, he uh, made the connections with the Cox Blade and he's won some big races because of that and that would be just another foot in the door um, with those sort of horses. But uh, I definitely wouldn't, like I said, do it for long because it's not sort of the way um, that I enjoy life um, and I think you can't change um your workplace just just you know I, I can't go there just to um ride winners and make more money that's not me i i would miss home too much 
Yep, fair enough. And just as we start to wrap up now, an early interview with Jamie Carr was, I might ride for five years and have a go at the Olympics. And uh, there was lots of different thoughts around what you may or may not do. And I think we've learned throughout this interview that you're not going to pigeonhole yourself or lock yourself into a railway track. You want to have the freedom to move around and and see where it takes you, not to avoid any challenges, just to be flexible. And the, what we know about elite individuals, if they've got flexibility with their options and choices, they've got a, a much more fulfilling proposition moving forward to a degree. Is racing something you see yourself doing in that long term? Do you do you think you may pivot across to, you know, show jumping uh, to follow the family DNA? Um, I think Uncle Danny might say he was the best Olympian in the family. But do, would, would you <laughs> would you follow that sort of um, aspirational dream, or or do you think it will be now racing a little bit longer term than maybe what you originally thought was the five year plan? Um, I could change my mind, uh, my mind in three months. I think <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> Take it as it comes, but I still wouldn't see myself riding for, you know, 10 years' time. I don't think that that would be me. Um, I want to give it a good crack while I can and while I'm enjoying it and while I'm young and fit and healthy. Um, but I could definitely see myself doing something different in, in five years' time, to, if, it's, if that's show jumping, if that's um, something else. It would probably have to be with horses because um, that's just sort of my passion. But um, yeah, I couldn't see myself doing this for 10 years. That's probably not me. It's an interesting sort of time right throughout the world with elite sports people and what they do in their downtime and how they escape from the pressures and all the challenges or the routine of, of competition. Uh, a tennis player, when they don't play tennis, is probably looking to do other things. Same with golfers and AFL footballers that I get the great fortune of working with. You're someone in your downtime who does more of the same thing, which is ride horses, right? I know you do it more for joy. You don't do it for any other reason, but it sort of is your relaxation mode. And I know... Our daughter it confuses her older brothers that you know when she doesn't have to ride, she wants to ride because that's her that's her release. That's that's where she feels like she's her most connected to her true self. Is that the sort of case with you too? On your downtimes, you, you are hanging with your favourite projects, whether they be your horses that you've had for some time or the ones that you're looking to retrain and rehome. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, Sunday is my day off, and I'm going to Bonio Park to go show jumping. Um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. So, um, yeah, that's just me. I don't think that, that will ever change. That's beautiful. Well, I think as we wrap up, one of the things I'm hearing here for Jamie Carr, whilst the rest of the world uh, is just so enamoured with her for her talent, her skill, her results, her achievements thus far, uh, this industry isn't her life. It just funds her lifestyle. She's very clear on who she is. She's very passionate about what she does when she's in the moment. But it doesn't mean you have to be, in many respects, dedicated to it for the rest of your absolute life. And I think that's a lot to do with Generation Next. They they seemingly have so many more options available. If I learned anything in this interview, if you come from a great support base and you're given every opportunity to be your best, it's almost the way you repay that sort of by doing the best you can with what you've got and the opportunities that you've created. And if the door isn't open, sometimes you've got to actually push it open. And that's what Jamie did leaving home, the safety and security of home, knowing what she knew at the time and to come across. So for all the young ladies listening to this, uh, my my hope is that whether you've got any interest in racing or not, this is a young lady who's uh, certainly you know, creating a pathway that you can follow if you are passionate about what you do. Don't get too attached to the outcome. Don't get too committed to you know longevity, but just get uh, absolutely passionate about the moment that you're in. Uh, racing is an adrenaline sport, but there's so many other ways you can get it right throughout the game of life. And I think if we learn anything from Jamie, 
it is that. Jamie, will we see you as a Melbourne Cup winning jockey? And if that's the case, great. And if not, probably won't define you. Is that something you've got on your radar? Or the I'm going to finish with the hokey interview question that you probably get asked absolutely every time. If you could win one race, what would it be? To be honest, I'd probably love to win either the Goodwood or the Sangster Group 1 Adelaide in front of my hometown. Jamie, you're an inspiration. You're a superstar. We thank you for the gift of your time. There would be so many uh, far more worthier interviewers and probably far more uh, worthier, dare I say, uh, mediums that you could have uh, dedicated this time to today. The fact that you gave it to us is something we haven't taken lightly or for granted. We really appreciate it. Huge shout out to uh, Craig Williams for, uh, I'm not going to say pushing Jamie into this, but he certainly was persistent in making uh, Jamie at least respond back to the opportunities. And we're hoping that uh, you can take advantage of what she shared with you today. When talent uh, meets opportunity, and there's some sort of preparation involved, that's when you get success. But I think it's very true to say that you know, if you do what you love, you don't really feel like you're working. But if you're not committed to the absolute strategic outcome and just committed to the moment, you will get the sort of results, whether you're a world-class jockey or a world-class individual of any shape or form. There's a lot you can learn from the example that is Jamie Carr. Jamie, on behalf of all of our listeners, we want to thank you for this opportunity. Wish you continued good, safe luck in riding we expect that you know for you it's always going to be a case of race by race at a time but uh the lead in the jockey premiership is you know pretty pretty comfortable at the moment but that that's not something you probably are even aware of at the moment if you don't know your strike rate so i guess that just confirms what we know you're an individual who is talented in the moment and living her dream can we say thank you to, to jamie carr as best you can by nominating someone else to pass this on to someone in your world that you know needs to hear this message this has been a powerful message jamie on behalf of all our listeners we say thank you so much no worries thank you for having me on and i didn't want to admit it but craig i did find that enjoyable so there you go <laughs> <laughs> he will love that, that is for sure. Jamie Carr, you're a superstar, as they say. Congratulations on your results thus far. Go well today and beyond. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. We trust you enjoyed this episode of Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos and their valued guests. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. You can subscribe through your favorite podcast provider to ensure you never miss an episode. And as always, we welcome your feedback, ratings and reviews of the content we provide. Additional information can be sourced from our website, voicesofvaluepodcast.com. We look forward to you joining the conversation again next week when Rick and Peter continue the search for truth, justice and the value-added way. Voices of Value.